you have a brain. <laughs> Use it. <laughs> I, I'm sure you have at one time or another been on the receiving end of that comment, uh, either by a teacher or a parent or a coach, and maybe you've even used it yourself. Uh, if you're a little older, uh, you may have heard the same thought expressed in a different way. Use your head for something other than a hat rack. <laughs> Uh, and while there aren't many hat racks around these days, we all still have heads and we ought to make use of them for something other than carrying our hats on. Both of those sayings are admonitions encouraging us to think, to engage our ability to reason. And reason and reasoning are good things and we know that. To be called reasonable is a compliment, while hearing that you're being unreasonable usually makes us more so. Even God invites us to engage our mental capacities with him when he says in the Old Testament, come, let us reason together. In my experience, faithful Christians... Uh, those who believe the Bible is God's word to humankind, complete and without error, and they make use of it in their own lives, who, who have put their trust in the cross of Christ, who are committed to a local expression of the body of Christ like this church here, and who are strangers, no strangers, to the throne of grace because they've approached that many times in uh, in prayer, uh, those are the most reasonable people in the world. Now, we're not perfect. We are a work in progress. Uh, we get things wrong all the time. I understand that. We still sin. But the Holy Spirit lives in us, and so soon we, we get back on the right track again. But sometimes, by people on the outside... We who are faithful Christians, or who are at least trying to be, because again, we all fail to some degree, sometimes we are accused of being unreasonable. And if you ask your accuser what he means by that, they will usually reply by saying something like, well, a little religion is an okay thing, but you're taking it too far. You need to show a little bit of moderation. You're a little bit of a fanatic. Now, if you think about that for just a moment, that's a compliment, isn't it? I mean, it demonstrates that at the very least, you're trying to live out your faith. And maybe sometimes uh, we get it wrong, but we really do believe, don't we? But it does raise uh, a question for us, doesn't it? I mean, can we be too fanatical about our faith? Can we go too far? Are, are there any limits which we ought to place on ourselves when it comes to living out our faith? Well, the short answer, of course, is no. But the text that we're going to look at today provides a basis for that answer. There are certainly other places we could turn to which support that conclusion, but we're making our way through the book of Romans, and uh, our passage today speaks directly to that question. So I would invite you to join me once again in uh, your Bibles in Romans chapter 12, uh, where we're going to be looking at verses 1 and 2, and of course it'll be on the screen on either side of me. 
Now, this is a very well-known passage, and many of you, I'm sure, have memorized it at some time in your life, and you could likely still quote it, even if you needed uh, a little bit of a hint to get you started. What I want to do is begin by reading the passage, and then we're going to take it apart and look more closely at each part. So Paul wrote these words, Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in the view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, and then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Now, those words have inspired millions of Christians down through the centuries all the way into our day. They have helped us to put their th- the things of our lives in the right order to put God and uh, where he belongs uh, as a primary purpose for our living. And, and that is most reasonable. The last part of verse 1 says this, this is your true and proper worship. The old NIV translation put it this way, this is your spiritual act of worship. Or the King James says, it is your reasonable service. And the New American Standard declares that it is your spiritual service of worship. The Greek words used here have a, a kind of a range of meaning, and each translation is trying in some manner to capture what Paul is saying here. The Greek word logikos means reasonable or in an understanding way, but it also has the sense of spiritual. While that Greek word latrian means service, but specifically service to God, so often the best translation is worship. So what Paul is saying here is that the thing that we as Christians do, or we ought to be doing, is a reasonable, that is a a true and proper serving of our God, which is an act of worship. So honoring God in our lives, serving him, worshiping him, is the most reasonable thing we can do as Christians. And there are no limits on that which is made very clear by what Paul said just before this. You see, we are to offer our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God, as it says in verse 1. The Greek emphasizes this a little differently. It says to offer our bodies as a sacrifice, living holy and pleasing to God. Now that spoke powerfully to the people in Paul's day. They they were familiar with taking a live animal to a temple and having it identified as their animal and watching it be killed and observing as the blood was used to cleanse them in some manner ceremonially and then seeing that animal's body or at least a part of it burning in the fire so the smoke was ascending to the heavens. See, we are to present our bodies in a similar way to that. And that makes this word uh, living here 
very important. Uh, that's why so many translations put it before the word sacrifice. So we're not to kill ourselves or, or be killed by someone else, uh, at least not physically. We are to die to ourselves and to sin every single day. However, rather than a dead animal body presented to God, we're to give him every day, over and over again, constantly and continually. That's what the Greek verb indicates. This body, this body, your body, as we live out our lives. As one commentator put it, the sacrifice of which Paul writes demands not the destruction, but the full energy of life. And Paul uses this word body here for a number of different reasons. It does stand for the whole person, yes. Uh, And we may have to give it up for the face someday. We may ourselves have to face martyrdom. But even if we don't, this is how... (laughs) We live out our faith. We live it out in the body. And then, too, the body and what we do with it is not unimportant. Some of the cults were saying it was. They were saying it was unimportant. They were saying the body's not important. And so some were saying, well, since it's not important, we ought to mistreat it, to treat it as a mere impediment that it is. And others were saying, well, the body is not important, so don't worry about it all. Sin away. That's not the Christian view of the body. The body belongs to God, and we are to offer it back to him. And finally, it's a vital reminder that Jesus came in a real physical body, which he did hand over to be crucified, and which was raised again three days later. And we know, don't we, that this body will one day be raised from the dead if we put our faith in Christ. The body matters, and it must be presented continually to God as we live. It is to be holy. That is, it's to be set apart for God. And if we do that, then it is well-pleasing to God. And isn't that, I mean, honestly, isn't that our goal? I mean, if we're Christians, isn't our goal to please our God? Well, if it is in your life, then Paul is telling you and telling me how we go about that. So Paul goes on to describe in some detail throughout the rest of this letter what that looks like in day-to-day living. But in verse 2, it's still part of an overview as he explains the kind of process which we go on if we're to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And the first thing he tells us is we must not let the world press us into its mold. Verse 2, do not conform to the pattern of this world. You see, the world is always trying to make us into its image when we were created to bear the image of God. So you picture taking a little bit of Play-Doh, right, and then putting it into a mold and pressing it in and pushing it down so that it fills every crook and every nook and every cranny of that. That's what the world is always trying to do to us. And Paul says, don't let it do that to you or stop 
letting it do that to you. There's some different uh, ideas about how the Greek ought to be translated. Yet it is clear that that's the very thing that the world has always been doing to us, forcing us into its mold. So that so much so and so long in our lives that we, we don't even realize it's happening until we experience something different. And then when we become Christians, we're set free from that. And so we have to put a stop to that process that has been going on in our life over and over throughout the years. And we must keep resisting that, that uh, process from that point on. Uh, the world's effects uh, on us as it tries to shape us into its image. And, of course, by the world, we don't mean this globe that we stand on. We're not talking about the earth. We, we, rather, we mean this system of thought, which by nature, since our nature has been corrupted by sin, is contrary to God. The Greek word there is actually the word for age. The world is a good translation of it. What we're really doing is... We're resisting the spirit of our age. You see, we deny its declarations on divorce, its confusion over sexuality from living together to so-called alternate lifestyles and its push to redefine God's institution of marriage and the male and female gender. What we used to call, what they used to call the new morality, we have always accurately defined as the old immorality, and we oppose the new assertion that there is no morality at all. We know that there is, and we know people like ourselves will answer for how we live. It's hard to stand against the tide when the whole world is going the other way, but stand we must. As uh, Leanheart says, what madness it is to join in that puppet show which is displayed on a tottering stage. We will not help anyone into the kingdom by becoming like them. We must show them a different way by being a different kind of people. We'll also not help them, um, uh, and we won't be a different kind of people if we condemn them. That is the way of the world. The way of Christ is to love the lost while speaking the truth to them and giving of ourselves whatever it costs to bring them to the Father. And so we're going to present our bodies a living sacrifice in order to please God, and we will not be pressed into the world's mode. Instead, we will become a different kind of people by filling our minds with the things of God, things that are upright and moral and good, things which please him. And as verse 2 says, we will be transformed by the renewing of our mind. We'll become a different kind of people. That's what it means to be transformed. 
That Greek word is the word where we get metamorphosis. It's a picture, and you know, I've heard it, and I know how many times you've heard it, but it's a picture of an ugly caterpillar becoming a beautiful butterfly. And, and I can hardly be more apt of an illustration. Now, I can't help but thinking that's why God made the whole process of metamorphosis from that ugly caterpillar to that butterfly just so we could understand some small way about that transformation that is going on inside of us. We are changed from the inside out. A change is not merely surface deep, but rather it's a change in the very core of our being. It it, it is that which is deep inside of us, the life of God living in us, his spirit within, making its way, his way out into every part of our being. It's the difference between life and death. We put our faith in Christ. We crossed over from death into eternal life. We were dead, now we are alive in Christ. It's a difference between light and dark. We were children of the darkness. We've come into the light, and so we are now the children of the light. We are a city on a hill. We are the light of the world. It's a difference between slavery and freedom. We were slaves to sin, but now, though we still struggle against it, though it still lives in us, though even when we would do good, evil is present with us, yet we have been set free from the power of sin. It is a defeated enemy in the last throes of agony as it still fights its losing battle. And yet this transformation goes on. It's a continual process to which we continually submit. We put our faith in Christ and we became a child of God. And now we are learning to live as his children every day and every moment of every day being transformed, becoming like Christ from the inside out. This is who we are. We are in the world. But we are no longer of the world. We are sent into the world to rescue people out of the world. We take heart against the world because our Savior overcame the world, and through him we too overcome. We fight a battle first off for the mind. Winning that battle is like taking a command of the high ground. Everything else then is subjected to our increasing control. We hold that hill and we keep up the fight and we don't give up for help is on the way. And as we fight, the world around us is changing under the sway of the gospel and the power of God Almighty as he works through us a changed people. We discover something else uh, as we fight that battle. We discover God's will for our life, and we understand just how amazing that will is. Look at the end of verse 2. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. The, The Word of God is telling us we discover God's will as we obey him. 
as we stand against the spirit of this age, as we are continually made new from the inside out, we discover whatever our struggles may be and at whatever cost we have to pay to get there, we understand just how amazing his will really is. Or as the scripture puts it, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. Something happens to us when we make this discovery. We realize it's no longer just our fight, but the fight. We come to know that it's not just my side, but the side of all that is right, and that we are standing against the evil of our time. We know that we have joined hands with the good and with all of those who have gone on before us and those who stand with us now and those who will follow after we have gone our way. And we're part of something bigger than ourselves, which is marching forward, unstoppable, irresistible, glorious and magnificent, something beyond compare, which we are only now just glimpsing the kingdom of God and we are willing because of it to give our all for that kingdom that's what it means to test and approve God's amazing and wonderful will and all of this that we've been talking about all of it is not because of you or me but it is for you and me. It is because of God. (laughs) It's a result of his mercies. And, And it was by his mercies that the apostle Paul made his appeal at the beginning of verse 1. I'm going to read the two verses again. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper worship. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. For 12 chapters in this book, Paul has taught us the multiple mercies of God. The Greek word is plural. It's not just one mercy. It's many. Those mercies have drawn millions of people down through the ages into our own day. It has drawn them out of themselves and out of the sin which has enslaved them and into the freedom of the children of God and everlasting life. And Paul and all of those who follow in his footsteps urge, appeal, beseech, plead, invite, call on, implore, exhort, encourage, uh, even beg. We urge you to consider God's mercies to you, to offer him your whole self, to refuse the way of the world, to be changed from the inside out by fighting the battle for your mind, and so to demonstrate the amazing will of God as you discover it and as you live it out for all who surround you, for them to see God's work in your life. Moses 
commands but the apostle exhorts he exhorts us to become all that God intends us to be and to enjoy all that he offers the surrender to God must be completely willing he coerces no one So I say, let the world call us fanatics if they will. I don't know about you, but I've been called worse, much worse. Their epithet will not stand. It is God who calls us by our right name. And and the words we long to hear are not those words that come from the people around us but from the lips of our God when he says to us well done good and faithful servant enter into your God's happiness if you put your faith in Christ you belong to him but you can make a difference in this world You are a city on a hill. You are the light of the world. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we thank you for the work that you um, have done in our lives and that you continue to do. And Lord, every one of us in here in here can confess that we have failed you in many ways and at many times but Lord we also confess that you are faithful you have promised never to leave us never to forsake us and that once you've begun a good work in us you will bring it to completion help us Lord to submit ourselves to that work And so may we please you, our God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.